This is a McKillop podcast. Welcome to Exploring Curiosity, Resiliency, and Hope, a podcast for times of challenge and transformation. We are excited for your presence as we learn, grow, and evolve from a multitude of voices and wisdom. This is a space for conversations and curiosity, finding ways to be resilient with all that is happening in our personal lives and the world, and maybe finding an embodied hope to live by. We join our host, Trevor, with Tony Snow for our inaugural episode to honor our process of truth and reconciliation. This was taped before the horrific discovery of the bodies of 215 Indigenous children buried at the Kamloops Indian Residential School. And if they can find that space, if they can find that centeredness, if they can find that way of grounding themselves so that they can then start to reach out and grow. It's, it's almost like a, to me it's like a plant, like a tree. And as you ground yourself, you are able to do more, you are able to provide more, you are able to sustain others. But if you are not grounded, then you're sort of floating and you'll eventually wither away. Tony Snow is from the Stony Nakoda Nation and following in the path of his late father, Dr. and Reverend Chief John Snow, a renowned spiritual and political leader in Southern Alberta. His father was the first Indigenous person to become an ordained minister in Alberta. The Reverend John Snow spent 30 years as the chief of Stony Nakoda First Nation, and up until his death in 2007, he was still writing about history and penning poetry. Now, Tony is also following in this path. Tony is the Indigenous Minister for the Chinook Winds region of the United Church of Canada and hoping to build bridges between communities and faith. Tony, uh, welcome and we're glad that you're with us today and uh, joining us in the conversation as we explore hope, resiliency and uh, curiosity. Thank you. How are you today? I'm good. For folks have never met you before, what would you like them to know about you today? Uh, I come from the Stony Nakoda First Nation, west of Calgary. Grew up there. Uh, my father was a United Church minister. I am in training to complete my studies in the MDiv program with the uh, Vancouver School of Theology. And I'm in this uh, uh, journey of uh, mission and uh, working with the church, the United Church, uh, as a uh, Indigenous lead for Southern Alberta, the Chinook Winds region. And I'm also uh, doing this with my brother who is going to be ordained in September and my sister who is also uh, working towards her uh, completion and studies in, in ministry. What's it like for you to, to live in some ways two worlds or two world views? Uh, I think we always grew up in that. And one of the primary things my father wanted us to do was to learn English uh, at a very early age, and, and that became our primary language uh, because he saw uh, some of the impacts of having one's own language and, and the diction that comes from that and uh, being able to think within a, a Western mindset. 
would be more of an advantage to us growing up at this time. Now, as we come to our uh, later years, uh, the uh, importance of passing on the traditions, passing on the language, passing on the customs, uh, become uh, more of the forefront for the next generation so that we don't lose uh, what we've been taught, what we've uh, held on to in terms of our culture and identity, but how that can be informed by a balance between the two worlds, between the, the non-Indigenous uh, Christian world and between the world of our people that has uh, a number of traditions and a number of customs around every part of our lives and, and governs the way that we think, the way that we engage, the way that we believe ourselves to be, and the purposes that the Creator has given us. There's a, a strong connection between how we can function as a, a gift from the Creator to this world to be uh, helpful in a way that uh, speaks to that stewardship and that role of uh, being one with these different systems and being a bridge between them. I'm always impressed, Tony, at how comfortable, uh, and maybe I'm wrong here, but you seem between the two different worlds. Mm -hmm. how, how did you come to this point of, uh, like, trying to be a bridge? I think it's always been there. I think uh, growing up in a large family, it's always been there. But in, in our relationship with our community, uh, we have gone through a lot, and we still maintain that integrity of, our purpose. So our family has always had a strong uh, lineage for, from uh, ancient times. We are the uh, leaders in our community. Uh, there's a traditional leadership uh, process, and our family comes from that line. And so we are related to all of the people who signed treaty. We're related to all the people who have been uh, part of the leadership throughout the, the centuries for our people. And in that uh, connection, there's a great responsibility to how you hold yourself in the community, how you hold the community's beliefs, and how you uh, work to balance community interests in and among one another. But also now, with the larger settler population incurring uh, on our spaces and in our community as members, then there's, there needs to be a better way to understand how we work together going forward. And I think that that in itself being a lifelong journey has helped me to work within ministry beyond uh, the settler population, but also working with the uh, immigrant population, also working with people of different backgrounds and ethnicities and interfaith backgrounds that uh, we can start to open up that conversation that should have always been there from the beginning. So before explorers and settlers arrived on uh, this land what was the w was your ancestors uh, like sh involved in leadership you said would it be like sh were you like a part of the religious leadership or like shamanic leadership or more of uh, yeah how, how'd that look before before settlers arrived and disrupted your people's way of life I think one of the interesting things around that, um, we do have at different times leadership that comes forward. So you have uh, a system where 
you would have a chief during the time of peace, you would have a chief during the time of war, you would have uh, different people who uh, would be trained in the medicines and in the ceremonies and in different rituals or, or in hunting or in, in uh, preparation of different aspects of life. And each person contributed their skill to that whole. They would spend their whole life working toward uh, perfecting what they did and pass that on to the next generation. So you have these nodes of, of, of understanding about what how the community connects to its surroundings and how they uh, work to balance uh, their beliefs into that earth. And so for us, that movement that always happened there, a lot of times anthropologists talk about the no, uh, nomadism, the no, nomadic structure of our communities. And yet within each of those areas, places like Yaha Tinda, places like um, Banff, and other areas, sacred areas where we would go to, they would go for particular reasons at particular times. And this is true of, of most, almost all of the indigenous people. When they moved around, they would move around in particular cycles. They would go to particular areas. And certain areas had significance. So rather than being like a church, which people build and they can uh, sell off and build another church, our churches are stationary. <laughs> and they they exist for a reason. And they exist with a purpose in mind, so there's an ecosystem around it. And you talk about the Banff Springs, which are a healing water, and even at the Cayman Basin, there's healing waters in those sulfur waters that are there, and they would go there for particular cleansing or healing or prayer times and be connected to those lands. And so in our relation to those lands, we would have cycles of understanding that would go around with that. And if people needed healing at a particular time, they would take instruction from a leader or from a, a, a person who uh, knew the, the process that had been worked through for thousands of years to understand how, what is the best benefit of working in this area and how do we understand this area area's power. Uh, to be able to work within that takes a certain amount of knowledge and expertise. And now today we don't really have that anymore we don't really have people really investing in in those areas and understanding the ecology understanding the way of life of a particular area i was talking to a man uh, from new zealand uh, yesterday and talking about the uh, river that they have a river in uh, new zealand and a mountain that were declared people so they they gave them the designation of, of yeah. person yeah. personhood and this really uh, is uh, almost uh, flies in the face of, of sort of Western identity, Western understanding. But that connects very much to the way that we see the world around us. And uh, if we live in accordance with those people, those ancestors, which are the mountains, which are the rivers, which are the streams, we find a way of fitting in and of working together in a way that's beneficial for us in a way that's beneficial for that community of the forest and the mountains and the, the uh, sacred areas that are there. As a nation, do you, do you ever hope or, I guess, hold in your hearts wanting to recover some of those traditions again? Yeah, and I think that uh, part of that work happened in the 1970s when we had our ecumenical conference here in Morley, which was an Indian ecumenical conference sponsored by my father and others, 
the United Church in the Anglican Church, uh, bringing together uh, the clergy and, and spiritual leaders from the Western Church, Western side, to hear and listen and take part in some of the activities, understandings, customs, and ceremonies of the indigenous people. And so that teaching was to demystify uh, the way that we understood our native religions and the way that we practiced and to show that we are not um, demonic or, or all these other things, but that we are uh, honoring the creator, honoring a way of life, and there's a, a theology within that. And so in investing in that time and in that discussion, a lot of the rebirth that we see today from the native, various native communities in pride in their own cultures, pride in, in continuing their traditions and turning away from the church, but to turn into more of their, their spiritual grounding with their teachings, that came from morally, that came from where we are to be a gift to those groups to try to uh, reinstall that pride in, in what they believe and who they are and who they were meant to be, who they were created to be in the areas that they are in and give a balance to their lives as being purposeful and centered in their lands and hopefully to uh, propel that into a uh, future of knowing who they are and knowing how they can be of service to one another, how they can be of service to their communities. So it's almost like a, a, a religious or what we would call a spiritual calling right now, but that would be something that each person experienced. And that makes sense for us because even in something like the um, uh, different ceremonies that we have, uh, there are ways that we go through as rites of passage to uh, become fully-fledged members who are contributing back into the whole. And so the vision quest for us is that ceremony that teaches us at a very early age who we are, what our relationship is to creator and to creation, and what our responsibility is from there. And we live the rest of our lives trying to fulfill those uh, guidances that we got at that age. And so the whole community is invested in this type of ministry work all the time. I was pondering as you, as you've been talking about Bamp Springs and it's known all over the world. I don't, mm -hmm. I don't know how many millions of people have been in it now, but how many <laughs> know, know that it's actually a, one of your sacred sites and uh, for you, uh, would you say when you go to, like, say, the Bamp Springs, is it where you find meaning and hope and connection, if, if, if that's what you were called to? It used to be, and it used to be a place of healing if you were sick, um, especially uh, during times of our, our history when we have stories of, of times of epidemic, times of pandemic, things that have gone on, smallpox or... Um, Spanish flu, which affected our communities, uh, the, the prescription was to go to this, these healing areas and to, uh, to partake of the, the uh, strength of that environment. Today, they're now all, um, there's, there's spa facilities built around them, there's gates, there's <laughs> entrance fees for people, uh, that it 
it, it doesn't it's commercialized and it's being marketed and they have they don't have the same uh, uh, resonance to to us in those areas and it's hard to do hard to do do a prayerful time when people are running around screaming and <laughs> that sort of thing <laughs> uh, especially at uh, there and at Lake Minnewaka and, and the uh, the waterfalls that are there there are uh, places of deep contemplative knowing that we go there to experience and by sharing that information broadly they become more of a, a tourist site and people um, go and, and expect the Disney version of it and it's difficult to uh, work within those expectations to, to say that no, it's actually the gift of uh, uh, the calling is found in yourself and is found in your experience of going through this process and in learning more about yourself so that you can become something of a different uh, different thinking person and, and that hope in that there is uh, an ability for people to uh, be resurrected or to be to go through that sense of grace and come out the other side as a renewed human being forgiven and cleansed and uh, set upon the earth to do good works uh, that tends to uh, be a very difficult path especially given all of the uh, uh, development that goes on would well, be it would be amazing if if we treated um, as settlers and Westerners uh, the earth as person as places mm -hmm. as person because as you said it's a very contemplative act then if you can because then it's you're relating subject to subject uh, mm -hmm. instead of object to object and when you and when you make something into object well it allows you to do all sorts of things to it plus make yeah. money and all that and I what I hear you saying is is that uh, to go to some of these places uh, and I'm using sort of Bamp Springs and others because people really know them is, is that yeah. like, wow, what would it mean to be in relationship and uh, to contemplate it? Uh, is mm -hmm. that what I hear you saying? To a certain extent, I think that a lot of it and a lot of the reason we do our ceremonies is a grounding, a centering. And I noticed that you do a lot of that centering process within your own ministry and the work that you do at McKillop. Um, I've seen and, and uh, learned from other churches and other uh, clergy on the the steps that they go through in order to develop that understanding of centering and, and calmness in order to step into the sacredness of what the the uh, the service is, is meant to uh, invoke and so when I look at that, I look at our ceremonies, I look at the way that we uh, produce contemplation and understanding of that in connection to land, that in connection to space. And so as part of our grounding um, in our prayers, that, that understanding of the four directions, the understanding of uh, the connection to the land and to the heavens, the, the stars, the, uh, that which is above, 
and be in the center of all of that, be connected to each part of the land and being connected to uh, creation in a way that is uh, meaningful and sustained by those um, balances of all these directions enclosing us and yet not being crushed by them but being uh, given life, given health, given support to know that we are part of and connected to that creation gives that sense of balance and I think that for a lot of people especially those uh, native people that I work with in my urban ministry uh, that connection to land has been lost and so trying to reinstall that and to give a sense of place to people through the knowledge of some of the sacred areas within our urban setting or sacred areas within our uh, larger community that they can go to and find those answers and find that space that they need to be to feel like they belong and that to me is is part of that journey so that that ability to share that ability to bring into community bring into creation in a way that is acknowledging and, and uh, loving caring supporting and nurturing for them for that time that they spend here and that they can take those teachings and that ability to center into other places and into other ways of thinking that will give them a grounding so that they know who they are as they learn, as they grow, as they develop, and as they encounter others. In your own life, Tony, has there ever been a time where you've lost hope or felt hopelessness? I think, yeah. I think uh, a lot of times it, it's related to... Uh, conditions that I've been in or uh, losses or uh, I lost both my parents uh, in for the first uh, my mother I took care of her for three years before she passed away in uh, 2000 and then my father passed away in 2006 uh, around those losses is a connection of uh, the things that you expected your life to be were no longer uh, the way that they they are now and you have to regroup, you have to figure out how you're going to get along, how you're going to move forward. And so that happens and that gives you skill in order to understand uh, things like when I've lost jobs or when I've lost uh, apartments, not being able to afford to live in Calgary and that sort of thing, or move from different areas and how to re-establish myself and to try to find a new way of uh, engaging with the, the presence around me and find a way of connecting to uh, a community and a, uh, a way of feeling like I belong to an area. And so in doing this work for ministry now, uh, taking all those experiences and now being able to transpose that into the feelings of others and to think about the way that others engage with uh, the community and, and struggles that they go through, that's why we do things like creating uh, hampers for the elderly and working with community members to do some wellness programming, to do some uh, uh, outreach and blanket exercises to the, the larger non-native community and find a way of balancing those interests in and among one another so that we can hold those uh, tensions of need and want and hope in a way that uh, restores a part of the, the sense of humanity to one another. 
<clears throat> from those those times that you were talking about uh what yeah what were some of the things you learned um that helped you see life in a different way like when you're taking care of your mom or with your father passing or some of those tough times that that's helped you be who you are today I think some of those lessons um, come from doing the wrong thing. <laughs> a lot of that is uh, being able to uh, find a way to forgive oneself and to live into that uh, sense of uh, grace and care and, and humility and, and being able to uh, care for oneself and then take that teaching uh, as a prescription to how you would treat others and how you would work with others. And so from this uh, process of uh, gaining knowledge, uh, even from uh, situations of uh, doing, doing wrong to others and doing wrong to yourself, uh, trying to find a, a way to, to act in that world of forgiveness to... Uh, be able to move beyond that and start to grow again. Wow, that's that's beautiful. That's like uh, feels like a lifetime of practice for me. Like how? Yeah, how do you forgive yourself? How do you forgive yourself? Um, I think that's an ongoing. That's <clears throat> sort of like uh, a uh, a negotiation through your spirit and you do the cleansing, the purification, the, the want of, of your prayers and, and the way of uh, living within that hope that you will uh, be doing the right thing or thinking the right way or being of service when you're needed. And a lot of that, when I entered ministry, um, you interviewed Pam Walker, you were saying, um, one of the things we talked about very early on when we both worked at Google was um, she was asking me about uh, some of the uh, the things that I do and even uh, the minister there Joanne was telling me was just saying to me you just go and do whatever you're whatever you're doing and, and uh, what she meant by that was that uh, the pact that I made with myself when I first walked into the first service at that church was to speak to the Holy Spirit and to say uh, lead me and and I will follow and that. Um, even if it's difficult, even if it's hard, even if I don't want to, um, I'll still step into those spaces because that's the journey that's important. And I'll never know if I uh, recoil from some of these instances. So I try to always uh, be in that mindset of uh, be willing and, and to uh, uh, challenge myself when I, I am uh, feeling a certain way about the situation or when I am uh, puzzled or, or wondering why uh, scriptures are being read in a, in a particular way, it's like my, my worldview is not the same, but it's just as valid. And I will step into that and uh, work with what I know uh, in a way that will help to uh, progress. And so that forgiveness part is really about being able to know yourself and trust yourself and trust that the work that you're trying to do is the work that you are being called to do. Um, whether or not you believe in a, a God figure, whether or not you believe in 
in the Bible or Christ, there's still a way to understand that you're being called by the community, by the, the world around you. Uh, there is need, there is want, there is uh, challenge, and to step into that in a way that can affirm your existence and affirm your life and your journey and use the tools that you've been given over time. Uh, there's a way of balancing that in order to feel like uh, you've moved in a progression. All of these things that you have gone through have been there for a purpose. And now you can utilize uh, those feelings, those understandings, the empathy, the uh, feelings of hopelessness to uh, work toward a better end, not just for yourself, but to, to kind of affirm to others that it doesn't end here and that we can rehabilitate, we can move forward, we can grow again. I heard you talking about trusting in yourself and also trusting in spirit and trusting in community. It, it To me, it sounds like there's this, like this calling um, when you're working with forgiveness and working through change and and loss and trauma and hopelessness that there's this like there's there's resources is that what is that your experience uh there are and they may not be what you think they are i think uh, <laughs> when i think of uh, reconciliation when i think of uh, intergenerational trauma and um some of the lateral violence that goes on unreserved, and some of the, the history of that, uh, the ability to forgive, the ability to step into uh, a space as a renewed human being, that uh, it's almost like a, an agreement between the community around you that they will allow you to, to um, live in that space like that. And to me, it's less about that, sense of control and that sense of, oh, you were always like this all your life and now you want to be something different. It's turning that around and saying, I am who the creator created me to be and to take on that strength of, of understanding that you in your life have uh, gone down a certain path and you've learned certain things. And now you've come back bringing those, those gifts forward. And as we work within that as we work to develop a better uh, sense of ourselves and our understanding there's a way of contributing that into the larger narrative and, and conversation bringing those teachings to the forefront rather than the uh, assumptions that people have always had of you and really that's that's a free liberating and uh, life-giving way of approaching these relationships because some relationships we keep our whole lives and, and they may they may never change but there are ways of being there are ways of understanding if we challenge ourselves to really find a balance between who we are becoming and who we were and that kind of gives us a sense of where we belong well it takes such courage to let go and to mm -hmm. listen and it reminds me, I've been using this quote in some of the interviews from Howard Thurman, but I'll read it to you, Tony. He says, mm -hmm. there is something in every one of you that waits, listens for the genuine in yourself. And if you cannot hear the sound of the genuine in you, 
you will all of your life spend all your days on the ends of strings that someone else pulls. Hmm. Like it sounds to me like part of your process has been listening to the sound of the genuine in your mm-hmm. life. The Im- immediate image that came to me right there was of a marionette and of the, uh, uh, the strings of, of being uh, presumed to uh, apply when you're doing the actions and uh, the assumptions that are linked to that on how we are being controlled, how we are being uh, made to do certain things in certain ways. And yet, I think a lot of the, the lessons that we get from Christ and Christ's life was about the independence of that and moving beyond those strings into a way of, of operating that is pretty much the same, but our heart is linked to it in a different way. And that uh, people may, from the outside, ascribe all kinds of lateral violence or assumptions or, or uh, imbue their trauma onto you. But if we know who we are and we know why we do things, if we have a purposefulness behind it and a almost a theology uh, for individual people, as I was saying from the, the idea of the vision quest being a, almost a theology around how we live our lives, then that sense of purposefulness, that sense of this is who we want to be and this is how we want to be in and amongst others and this is how we would like others to, to react to us, but that may not happen all the time, uh, that doesn't change our heart. That doesn't change how we want to be. And, and there are numerous examples of elders who uh, reach out even though they've gone through all kinds of trauma, even though they've gone through all kinds of of loss that uh, in that example they are reaching beyond to perform what they know to be the right thing that's coming from their heart and people understand that sense of authenticity that sense of discernment that brings an elder brings a person like that to an enlightened phase and and being able to contribute back in a meaningful way to people's lives and that to me is the journey that uh, we are only here for a brief time And as we work through these uh, different conditions, we are learning, we are gaining, we are experiencing, and that is all meant to help us to encourage in that next generation, in in those that come after, to be a guide. And and if we act in that manner, in a purposeful manner, that says uh, we are not lost among creation. We are not merely numbers. We are not merely... uh, the, the superfluous part of our, our community, we are actually integral members who contribute and give back and share our knowledge that we can then uh, be a support that helps to maintain the world that we want to, to come forward. Hmm. Has there been an elder in your life that surprised you um, and informed you on your journey there have been many and in many different ways um uh, just as you can't learn everything from one person you uh i think each and every experience is an opportunity to engage and to learn something 
And so uh, that's part of that walking into spaces where you're uncomfortable is that's what that's about. It's about uh, being able to take one gift from that experience and being able to take one uh, teaching that you can then apply to your own life. And even if it's a merely an insight that comes to you while you're speaking to somebody and it's something that they never said, it is there is something there about uh, how we engage and how we take on those experiences into our skin. And how how do you remain open to all these experiences, Tony, so that you you can allow an a, an other, or um, whether that be a person or a place or a time, to teach you? Mm-hmm. I think that comes from from knowing who you are, and I think that comes from centering. I think that comes from uh, the expectation that life is uh, a bounty and that life is there to uh, help and propel you. I think that some of the people that we see, say, in the the uh, uh, videos and stuff that come out from the States of people standing at Walmart lines yelling at each other or that sort of thing is, is really taking away from that experience of what we are meant to be in this world, how we are meant to be open and, and learning from one another. It, it flies in the face of that where we think we can dictate to other people, where we think that we can uh, uh, utilize uh, sleight of hand in order to convince other people to around to our way of thinking. I think that the, uh, the self-preservation side says uh, we will contribute as much as we can for as long as we can, as long as it sustains us, and that in that relationship, um, we're not there to change or to uh, really follow, find answers for other people, but they are uh, taking that gift from this journey and that insight and applying it to their own way. And if they can find that space, if they can find that centeredness, if they can find that way of grounding themselves so that they can then start to reach out and grow, it's, it's almost like a... To me, it's like a plant, it's like a tree. And as you ground yourself, you are able to do more. You are able to provide more. You are able to sustain others. Uh, but if you are not grounded, then you're sort of floating and you'll eventually wither away. Um, this connection to the earth, the connection to our belief systems, the connection to our way of being is all integral in, in the way that we try to... Uh, be part of that story and, and we can only be part of one another's story we cannot change we cannot uh, drive the way other people think are, are there some if you're willing to share some spiritual practices that you do to help uh, ground yourself to remain open, uh, to to not want to change people, but instead be part of their story and, and hear that. I've been very busy for the past um, couple of years doing a lot of uh, different activities. The, um, the thing that I found when I was very anxious at one point um, was to, and I'm, I'm a writer, um, I did my undergrad in uh, English and creative writing. And so when I went to um, start writing out 
prayers for a service that I was doing, um, writing out the prayers that I wanted to, to include in it. As soon as I started there with that anxious feeling, I started writing and, and sort of reflecting and putting things down. That's when I sort of clicked into that centeredness. And by the time I had done uh, the prayer that I, that I wanted to give, I was uplifted. I was um, rejuvenated from this, the, the, all the anxiety or all the pressure that was coming into now being able to handle that and to be able to reflect that that uh, the values were stronger than the, the doubts, than the uh, anxiousness or the uh, worry. And so uh, being able to find yourself in, in the word, in the thoughts, and in the meaning, uh, to me is, is that practice of centering and of faith. Um, there are also areas uh, or times when I would go out to our family area where we have uh, the ability to uh, leave offerings or, or do prayers at, at different times and to use that and the memory of that, the, the connection that you find in those times and spaces. It's almost like one of these, um, uh, when you do uh, more of the uh, self-help routines of, of trying to calm yourself and, and picture yourself in a, a, a wooded area or, or a pleasant place and try to imbue the feelings from that experience into yourself, which I've seen you do numerous times in your, in your services. And in the memory of those feelings, to find that sense of connectedness, that sense of being in space and being involved in, in these connections. Um, gives us gives us the ability to then rewire what we are doing to flow again um, instead of being uh, blocked up or, or uh, hindered by things that seem to overwhelm us. And so being able to get perspective, being able to find that center, being able to know who we are and remember. A lot of that it has to do with uh, trauma and with the uh, work of uh, things like the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that happened not only in Canada but in South Africa, uh, that, that practice of uh, truth-telling, that practice of knowing, that practice of uh, taking that trauma and, and speaking it and, and having it accountable to uh, the, the people that are engaging um, is part of that process of uh, healing that we can find ourselves in and amongst the anxieties, in and amongst the uh, challenges that are around us, and to be able to uh, know ourselves in those spaces and what we would do, and to be able to then work through uh, some of the bigger challenges in ways that make sense to us, in the way that our bodies uh, really understand and accept. It's hard not to assume sometimes about everybody's journeys, and I think um, the settler population probably makes a lot of assumptions about First Nations and mm -hmm. Inuit and Métis. One of my assumptions, and maybe you can tell me if I'm wrong, is that uh, your community has had to experience a lot of I heard you say the word lateral violence, violence, trauma, 
uh, and hate over many generations. And in a way, um, settler populations, whether they know it or not, there's been a systemic mm-hmm. racism too. Mm-hmm. And like, how, how, do you, how do you work with that? And, and maybe to make it even like more concrete, like work with hate when you, when you come up against hate in your life and, and trauma. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm just really curious, Tony. I think one of the things um, that that immediately came to mind was the idea of history. Um, history connects us to story and connects us to ways that, that we have uh, been engaging and been relating to one another. And so it's a way of trying to remember those connections. And it's a way of trying to uh, create the narrative strain that says that we were once here and now we are here. Uh, that is important in, in terms of uh, community healing. When we see times of hate, uh, when we see times of intolerance uh, within the community, so this lateral violence portion, um, a lot of it is a forgetting of place, the forgetting of uh, relationships, the forgetting of uh, our due to one another and, and how we are called to treat one another, especially in our customary way, and to remember that these systems have been put there for a purpose. They've been worked through for generations, for thousands of years, in order to help us to uh, solidify our uh, purposefulness within this time. And when we forget that in our various communities, when we forget our calling to be of service to one another and to care for one another and to love one another, then we lose that sense of um, being accountable to one another. And that, to me, opens the opportunity for uh, acts of disgust, acts of hate, acts of intolerance, acts of uh, not meaning well for one another and for the community at large. When we see that outside the community to the to the indigenous population, say at Morley, uh, from the neighboring towns, uh, who are primarily non-native uh, groups who have a history of working with that community, uh, working against that community, uh, fighting at different times over land, over uh, resources, over uh, assumptions. Maybe someone was murdered at one point, maybe something had happened to somebody at one point. Um, all that bad blood, all that uh, uh, unresolved conflict comes to the forefront. And in that time, it's important to recognize, to apologize, and to give that historical context so that we can then uh, learn truth and try to live within that truth so that we are able to function well together. If we don't do that, if we continue to live with an expectation that you know why I'm hurt and I know why you think I'm hurt and and all this sort of thing, where we're not talking, we're not communicating, where we're not growing in relationship to one another, in relation to one another, then we, we end up in a situation where we don't, I don't know you and you don't know me. And that's really fine that that doesn't have to uh, hinder our uh, ability to to live in this world 
apart from one another. And that is not in our, our traditional way of thinking. That's nowhere on the scale that we should be doing that. We should always be trying to find a way to get along, to live in each other's spaces, to share, and to uh, be able to um, speak truth to one another when necessary, and to to be able to act upon that in a way that says we take in the criticism, we act in a different way because we are responding to that that need of community uh, healing to be uh, uh, willing to participate in a longer conversation than just the, the, the quick transactional apology, receipt of apology, and then move on, which is really a, a legalistic way of looking at it. When we look at what actual apologies or relationships do, if you had to ever apologize to a spouse, if you had to ever apologize to a family member, and then try to work with them after that for years, <laughs> then you understand that there is a, a greater intentionality behind it and that it's an ongoing uh, way of being. And only if we allow for that grace and forgiveness can we start to see one another differently. So with all your experiences in being this bridge, um, between the communities, like if someone asked you today, what is hope or what would hope mean to you? How would you answer that? I think um, hope to me is something that is something you can pass along, something that is intergenerational, something that is uh, broader and more far reaching in its scope that, uh, we do not um, limit ourselves to, to merely finding hope and balance for ourselves, but we look at it in terms of uh, a larger story. Uh, hope is, to me, is about connection. It's about uh, reconnecting and the ability to uh, find space within that uh, space of forgiveness, space of grace that. Uh, hope is connected to a way of understanding the world and of uh, being in relation to that. So if hope is about connection to you, like how can, um, like right now between you and I, how do we create this hope by the connection between us? How do I as a non-native person... Um, and yourself, how do we create this hope? I often think about this in terms of um, the Good Samaritan story. And um, so we had a uh, uh, talk by Dr. Derek Cook who came to uh, McDougal for one of my um, ethical dilemma sessions. And he talked about how he went to the sea um, train station and had been walking along, and, and there was a guy, a native guy, lying on his on his side, on the ground, and everybody was kind of walking around him or stepping over him because he was in the way of the morning rush. And he stopped, he knelt down, checked if he was breathing, he uh, talked to him, rolled him over, and, and asked uh, if he could help. And then the guy told him that his cane was sitting over the other wall, and he couldn't get to it, and so he 
Uh, there was just a little laying there. And so he went over, got the cane, brought it back, helped him up, gave him a couple bucks, moved on, and then had proceeded to foresee him every once in a while uh, and would talk to him a little more each time. And so what, and, and in relation to that Good Samaritan story of, of finding the person and bringing them to a, an inn and, and paying for their well-being and saying, I'll come back and, and, and continue, um, that obligation, that responsibility, um, to me is, is that sign of hope, is that sign of um, we can do things that reach beyond ourselves, that uh, help to uh, engage with others and to bring them back into that circle of humanity. We can begin to uh, rehabilitate the world we have around us by acting in a way that is true to our values and in accord with our calling in this world. And so that's the connection of hope to that is about that ability to think differently, that ability to uh, foresee a different path than what everyone else is doing, than what um, we are expected to do or what we are called to do, or even the fear and, and, and uh, concern around, oh, I might be taking on an obligation. There's a lot of that sort of uh, uh, legalistic understanding around it where uh, we don't necessarily want to clean each other's uh, uh, walkways or driveways during the snow time because we'll get charged with doing uh, whatever and we won't have protection under particular bylaw of this or that. That's the, the hindrance to hope. That's the hindrance to a way of being and understanding the world. Uh, whereas if we try to do good, good works of their own accord, and if we try to reach beyond who we are in order to uh, begin to process a different way and to engage in a different narrative, then we don't know the end, end of that. We don't know whether or not that will be successful if we deal with people with addiction, if we deal with people on the streets. Uh, we don't know that our efforts will ultimately come to fruition, um, do something good for them. But we have hope. We have a, a thought that says we cannot go on the way that we are doing things. We have to do it a little differently. And though we may stumble and fall, though we may fall down from, from our efforts uh, and not get to where we want to get, even then there is still hope. There is a, a vision of uh, a better way of being. And so to me, it's all about that vision. It's all about that ability to look further into the future to see a, a time when uh, my nephews and, and nieces have a better time in this world, have a better relationship with their community members, with their non-native friends and, and others, that they can build a stronger place for themselves in a world that is more open to having them involved and respecting what they've been taught and what they have to contribute. So there's the, that sense of hope is as a larger uh, way of, of being in the world. And to me, that's why I say it's all about relationships. It's all about being able to uh, step outside of ourselves and to find that glimmer of hope. I, I, that's a beautiful vision 
Uh, it's one that I feel drawn to. <clears throat> As you were talking about the Good Samaritan too, I th I thought this thought came in or image came into my mind, Tony, was that what if um, us white folks are the ones in the ditch too? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and that's what our elders would say. Um, they would say we need to help the white people because we don't want them destroying themselves and us. But <laughs> they would continuously <laughs> try to say that that we have a role, we have a responsibility with our teachings to help and to be part of that solution gathering um, so that we are able to work together in the future. There's been so much like hierarchical uh, patriarchal relationships in our world yeah. and it's like you know, it's it's sort of it's so easy to think uh, well you know th this person or this situation has all the answers yeah but when I hear you talking about hope I hear you talking about relationship and connection which which is always changing and so you need to always be listening yeah I mean it's mm -hmm. It's a much more organic um, process to mm -hmm. to engage in that. I think that one of the uh, I'll bring in one of the uh, the poems that I thought about for this talk and for this time that we have together um, was uh, I, I often refer back to this poet that I met in uh, um, the Anaukin Center in BC when I went for a uh, a creative writing class there. We had a uh, woman um, come in by the name of Joy Harjo, and she did a number of, um, she does um, spoken word and saxophone um, type work and does a lot of jazz and stuff. And um, very, draws a lot on her uh, heritage, her, her Muscogee Creek heritage from Oklahoma. And uh, last year she became the, the Poet Laureate for the United States. So this poem has always sort of resonated with me about the times that we are in and the work that we're trying to do, not merely in terms of uh, reconciliation, but in terms of healing and, and finding our way. Um, it is as though we are reaching a, a time of transition, a time of change, and a time of uh, finding a new world, finding a new way of looking at the world. And I think that this, to me, is all what all of our creation stories are about, about seeing the world anew, either through metaphor or through ways of understanding. Um, and so this is the, the poem by Joy, Joy Harjo called Once the World Was Perfect. Once the world was perfect, and we were happy in that world. Then we took it for granted. Discontent began a small rumble in the earthly mind. Then doubt pushed through with its spiked head, and once doubt ruptured the web, all manner of demon thoughts jumped through. We destroyed the world we had been given for inspiration, for life. Each stone of jealousy, each stone of fear, greed, envy, and hatred put out the light. No one was without a stone in his or her hand. There we were, right back where we started. We were bumping into each other in the dark, and now we had no place to live, since we didn't know how to live with each other. Then one of the stumbling ones took pity on another and shared a blanket. A spark of kindness made a light 
The light made an opening in the darkness. Everyone worked together to make a ladder. A wind clan person climbed out first into the next world, and then the other clans, the children of those clans, their children, and their children, all the way through time to now, into this morning light with you. Well, thank you. Wow. Poetry for me always causes me to be silent for a moment. And so one of the important things that I, I take away from this is always that um, that light, that forgiveness, that ability to reach out um, is something that is a gift. It is uh, it is what what God did at the beginning and so this whole let there be light idea within Christianity or even with our traditions um, the, idea, the idea that light is there um, uh, related to, to the, the eagle and, and that connection of wisdom and insight coming into the world to awaken the people um, this connection to um, something that was never asked for, something that was freely given, um, that explains our existence here. And if I hear what you're saying correctly, I, I believe I'm hearing you saying if, if we can, I don't know if the right words are, see the light, follow the light, be the light, the, the hope will unfold. Mm -hmm. And I think it's all of those. I think that we are made of, of the stuff of the universe and that we are part of it. And that the more that we can see ourselves as connected to that universe, the more that we can do good works, the more that we have hope that our uh, uh, engineering and our way of being is, is what's meant to be for not just ourselves, but for all those that depend on our ability to be the to, for our ingenuity to come forward and I think that that's, that's our gift to give back to creation to say that we are taking on that role in a way that um, will help and contribute back to the larger community of creation and give a gift back to that world. It certainly seems what we need right now with everything that's going on. Mm -hmm. That uh, I that uh, that I hear you suggesting to us that we each have a gift uh, right now to give. Yeah, and that goes back to uh, some of the early um, indigenous uh, theologians talking about First um, Corinthians 12 and that idea of gift, that idea of um, we are all imbued with that and we are to bring those forward to that center, to that circle to contribute and uh, each one uh, has a purpose and that is very much our elders teaching. Is there anything else 
that you wanted to say today? Only that um, in doing that, in, in trying to find a way to uh, create a space, create a, a way of understanding for one another, there's uh, a need for uh, recognizing how we utilize those gifts into power, into ways of being within the church. And so one of the things that I've, I've been stressing in a lot of the talks that I've been doing uh, with the church especially, is a quote from the uh, the book Around the Sacred Fire by James Treats. He quotes um, a, a 1969 speech by Dave Kershane, who was the president of the Manitoba Indian Brotherhood, who spoke to the 24th Synod of the Anglican Church in Ontario. And he talked in a way that um, called the church to stand up and be part of uh, creation, be part of uh, the way of living. And he said, uh, what are the obligations and responsibilities of society as a whole? Christian asked the General Synod delegates, can the Canadian public really delegate their responsibilities to government? Can they really park their social conscience in, in the corner in the hope of belief that the government by itself can affect social change, reminding his Anglican audience that the nation of Canada is predicated on a Christian ethic. He questioned whether they would be rise up in righteous indignation to protect the rights of oppressed minorities. Where does the church stand on issues affecting social change, and particularly as such change applies to Indian people? He asked. The church represents a potential for force for change, a potential force for change. The church possesses a capacity to influence change as does no other agency in our society. It is literally invulnerable to external pressure. It can take a position and stand up and be counted on the issues of the day. It can make its voice heard. And so in that call, I think, to me, that's always been the most important part of my work within the church is to find that space where we are utilizing what we know and how our gifts can be brought into the, to the forefront in a way that um, does what that Good Samaritan did, lift up the other person, bring them back into the fold of humanity and start to live and work in and amongst one another. And that's the whole vision of reconciliation. That's the whole vision of uh, intercultural work that, that, we can engage in and that we should feel responsible to because as this uh, leader was saying that the church is literally invulnerable to external pressure and I believe that I believe that uh, there's a way of being if we are utilizing that that caring and, and uh, call to be one humanity that we can act in a way that is a benefit not only to our congregation and to ourselves, but to the larger community and the way that that community operates in relation to one another. And so I've seen efforts like that, and that's what that Indian Ecumenical Conference was all about, was to try to bring that sense of equality and understanding, that time of sharing into uh, a realization that um, 
We each believe different things. We are very different people. But there's a space for each of us in that circle. There's a space for each of us to speak and to be part of that and to come there in wholeness to try to gain from one another and to try to share as much as we can. And so as we do that and as we participate in that way, we are healing one another. We are healing our spirits. We are healing that circle and finding a better way to live in and amongst one another. So that would be uh, my message to the larger church and to uh, the congregations today. Well, amen. I, 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 I full-heartedly agree. It reminds me of uh, gardening. Uh, we have a, a beautiful garden out front that my partner does a lot of work on. Most of it, I should say. All of it. I just do a heavy lifting once in a while. <laughs> but... But what we're learning in even our vegetable garden is the more um, the more diversity you have. And I don't mean diversity uh, instead of uniformity, because the church has been pretty mm-hmm. uniformity. But the more the more variety you have, um, the greater resiliency the garden has, the more species of bumblebees and bees can live there more mm-hmm. the, the less bugs, different bugs get out of control. Uh, it just provide so much health and you I, I just hope as a human species that we can embrace what you've been talking about of of this diversity because uh, it will lift all of us up together I have a to end our time uh, sort of six quick questions uh, okay. that we're, we're asking everybody <laughs> they're sort of more light-hearted but um, just off the top of your head when you hear these questions uh, what book has most impacted your life and helped you find resiliency or hope or curiosity? I think uh, there are a number of different books that do that, but um, probably my father's book, which is uh, These Mountains Are Our Sacred Spaces. Places. Um, they are, uh, it really goes into the depth of understanding of our Indian religion, it understands that space and, and was described by the uh, the person who uh, got, uh, who runs the Sandy Soto Center as it's it's like the work of Paul and the work of Paul in community and reading it through that lens it's really a whole new way of, of doing ministry it is an adaptation and and reworking of uh, our presence within this time and in this space and in this uh, denomination. Is there a place in nature that brings you hope? I think um, there's a waterfall behind our house and that space uh, has always been a place of refuge, a place of calmness and, and really a place nobody goes to so it's like a place of quiet and the ability to go there and and, uh, be at one with the the creation around you it's in a deep valley in areas where it's hard to get to (laughs) so it's a nice uh, retreat what are you curious about these days I think um, 
because of the way that things are going with a lot of the uh, communities and, and Discord, uh, one of the things that I, I'm really curious about is how will we ever get along and how will we ever find a way to uh, open ourselves to one another and to um, be able to make relationship. So the reconciliation question is, is always a question to me, um, whether it can ever exist. Hmm. Hmm. Is there a, a piece of music that nourishes your journey? Um, all kinds, but um, there are a few songs, and I, I've uh, recently been uh, looking for uh, indigenous uh, people who, who are creating music. And so we have a, a number of different examples from Buffy St. Marie and all of that. And we've used that in some of our services. But um, William Prince is one that, that I've been listening to that uh, he does a song called Seven, which I'm trying to uh, get them to let me perform for the rendezvous. So that's one that I'm doing. Hmm. Is there something you're grateful for this week? Um, a sense of calm, uh, being able to be on top of things and not having too much to do, but this sense of uh, last year, the last three years have been very, very busy and, and working at a nonstop pace on a lot of different types of projects. And even the earlier part of this year was still a lot of things happening every month, things happening every week. And now it, it's I feel like there's a body of work that I can start to reflect back on and help to motivate what selections will come forward next. So it's a nice space of calm before that. Hmm. Is there a movie or documentary that you'd suggest for people to watch? So the film that I'm thinking of is uh, one called There's Something in the Water where it talks about environmentalism and ecology in, in connection to um, racism and anti-racism and, and how to work within different communities, uh, some of the teachings that we need to uh, honor and respect. And I think that if people haven't checked that out, then that would be something that would be a value for all people, especially within a um, social justice-oriented church. Well, thank you so much for your time, Tony, and your sharing of your life and your wisdom. I really appreciate it. Thank you. What sparked your curiosity in this episode? Do you sense a resiliency that was hidden before? From the conversation, where is hope leading you? If you are enjoying this podcast, please subscribe, consider rating it, and sharing it with family and friends. This podcast is produced by McKillop United Church. Thank you for joining us, and thank you for the generosity of all of our donors. If you want to support this podcast, go to patreon.com or mckillopunited.ca slash donate. Peace and blessings to you.